0: back to Smiling in Hell 2.0, Life After Retirement and Then Some. And I uh, just want you to know that I appreciate all of you listeners out there, all three of you. Um, and uh, thanks, Uncle John. So um, anyway, this is uh, one that I uh, posted a uh, Last summer, and since it's been so dang hot out, I thought this was uh, appropriate to to share with y'all. Uh, it's a little longer than usual, which it took me a little longer to to write it up. So please bear with me as I wander through a nostalgia that is probably interesting only to in, to me. Anyway, this was Chapter Eight in Smiling in Hell uh, after retirement, and it's called the Banana Split Summer. And wasn't it? Hasn't it been like really nice out lately? You know, I once knew a guy who would say, hey, you know, it's really nice out. I said, well, let's leave it out then when somebody said that. But since the thermometer has been creeping higher and higher lately, and maybe because I'm retired and on permanent summer vacation from school, I've had a whole swimming pool full of summertime memories kind of falling out of my ears like lobsters. they going all over the place, too. And most of them have been showing up from my past voyages through the land of Cleve, you know, Cleveland where I grew up, Smiley, smiling, smelling of honeysuckle, lilac, chlorine, and coppertone. Just the thing to get me waxing even more sentimental than usual. Well, once upon a summer's eve, there was a young fella enjoying the blissful months between his seventh and eighth grades. Remember when they had seventh and eighth grades in junior high by riding bikes to the park in without helmets, mind you, with his buddies from morning till night. Pitching baseball cards on the front stoop with a bottle of Pepsi close at hand, playing Army after the streetlights came on. Mom's okay, of course with a neighborhood gang, running through everybody's yards, hiding in and occasionally trampling on the bushes in order to ambush those wary unwary enough to wander across your deadly path as you lay in wait with your favorite Mattel toy, pistol, rifle, broom handle, stick, or other plate type gun. You know, funny, even though most of us grew up slaying our best friends with the tongue-rolling sounds of a plastic machine gun, eh, kind of like this, or the cheek-bursting blast of a pistol, none of us grew up to be psychopathic serial killers, real gang members, or even politicians. Eh, It makes you think. Not to get into the whole when I was a kid thing, but I really do think that since we didn't have cell phones, computers, YouTube, video games, and every flavor of social media you would want, we really did have to come up with stuff to do, uh, you know, other than try and decide what gender we want to be. Sure, we'd accidentally bust a neighbor's window with a baseball. It was an accident, really, now and then, or, or even with an errant BB gun shot that ricocheted off an aluminum lawn chair, holding a target that we probably knew we would never be able to hit anyway. Of course, we were told that we, we were going to pay for it, pay for that window out of our allowance but since we rarely really ever saw an allowance it wasn't much of a threat but you know it was the principle of the thing and we'd play 300 too now it wasn't a version of the spartans versus the persians like in that movie 300 although that would have been super cool but since we oftentimes didn't have enough kids to mount a full-scale baseball game in the street we conjured up this game of hit and catch that could be played with just a couple of guys, a ball and a bat. See, one guy or a girl, hey, hey, we were ERA before ERA was cool or before we even knew what it was or before the guys were saying they were girls, Uh, but we, we would be the bat. One would be the batter and the rest of us would be fielders and go about two or three houses down the street then he or she with the batter would hit fungos to the outfielders who would vie to see who could make the catch. Each type of hit caught got points. So if you caught a grounder, you'd get uh, maybe 20 points. Pop-up was worth 30 points, and a skull-cracking eye-level line drive was worth, I think, 50 points if you survived. Uh, Then you'd add that to your score, and no surprise, the first fielder to reach 300 got to change places and bat which we'd all rather be doing anyway. And we would play that for hours, toss the ball up, hit it as hard as we could towards our pals, watch them shuffle for position to mitt that sucker. It was fairly calm with a lot of good-natured kidding and a lot of missed easy ones. The game took on a slightly more aggressive tone when there were older kids playing like my brother and his buddies. It meant that most of us younger, smaller, and let's face it, less athletic players would often fall victim to a push, pull, uh, shove, a flying elbow, or a trip that would send us careening gracelessly to the street. The hard, rough, unforgiving, merciless, cement street. Several inches of epidermis were sometimes left behind as a souvenir of a well-fought duel for that invaluable 20-point grounder, and heaven forbid you should show any pain. I'll walk it off was my brother's usual recommended treatment for such an injury, if you saw the first indications of a tear coming out of my eyes. Or uh, rub some grass on it, was another commonly shared solution for an injury caused by a battle technique that was outlawed by the Geneva Convention. Yeah, I know you're thinking you should have said rub some dirt on it, but grass was closer and easy to grab a handful of. It was the summer that, as I was another year older, a combination of elements in the universe collided in the stars that propelled me into a roller coaster of hope and anticipation that made Indiana Jones' quest for the Grail look like the merry-go-round at Kittyland. You know the one with the big duckies and hippos to ride. And I always liked the hippos because they made my husky boy-sized ego feel a little bit better. In other words, it was pretty exciting. First of all was the availability of the bike. Simple thing, the bicycle, riding a bike. Heck, I'd been doing it ever since my dad released me from the bonds of training wheels, held my seat as he jogged beside me up and down the sidewalk, guided me gently down our driveway, and then let go with a hearty, you got it then watched terrified as I courageously, though wobbly, rolled straight into a beautiful head-on collision with a huge maple tree at the end of our driveway, the one that had been there since Lewis and Clark strolled by. I rubbed some grass on it. Heck, we would rode our bikes every way, to school, to the park, to Jim's Delicatessen at the end of the street, to look at comic books, and not as good as Bliss's Deli, but it was closer to Kresge's 5 and 10 to check out the model cars, and finally to that glorious chrome and neon temple of all that is good and right in the world, that beacon of glorious treasures that filled my dreams most night, the center of the galaxy of desire, Dairy Queen. Oh yeah, I was then old enough to actually be allowed to ride my bike all the way to the brand new Dairy Queen on Brook Park Road. And ride there I did. Got a dime? Go to Dairy Queen for a cone or a dilly bar. Got a little more in your pocket? Hmm? Go to Dairy Queen. So what's it going to be today, kid? A Mr. Misty? A hot fudge sundae? Or the usual? (laughs) Yes, my usual. Like Norm and his beer, I too had become a creature of habit. A slave to the queen. A junkie for that scrumdilicious delight. The banana split. Yeah, I had a problem. See, I couldn't have just a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill banana split that DQ, oh yeah, we were on a very familiar basis, served to just anyone. Oh no, I had to have my own special, personalized cocktail of prescription toppings. See, your traditional BS, that's banana split to you lay folks, had three perfectly swirled Buddhas of snowy white domes, each with a gravity-defying curl, kind of like Superman's hair, on top. In fact, as Dairy Queen still describes it, quote, our banana split is made with delicious creamy DQ vanilla soft serve nestled between sweet banana slices and covered in luscious strawberry, pineapple, chocolate, and whipped toppings, unquote. Sounds pretty good, huh? Pretty delectable. Sure, for the common BS Viber, but maybe, but maybe not for me, not so much. No, instead of the three toppings they usually put on, I always ask to have mine with hot fudge, butterscotch, and marshmallow sauces, just to keep it light, see? Oh, and chopped nuts on top of the whipped cream. That's what made it. That was my go-to problem-solving, adolescent anxiety-reducing, bad dream-erasing, and most important of all, reason to hang around Dairy Queen in case she came in. Now, don't misunderstand it. I really did have it bad for the DQBS. I don't think a week would go by that I wouldn't be jonesing for that triple dip mountain of sugar, hence my Husky reference earlier. I would plan for days and how I could scrape up 50 cents, which is what I remember them costing back then, unless I had a 29-cent day. I had it so bad, even got my mom to support my habit by telling her that, yeah, sure, mom, I can carry two banana splits home on my bike before they melt. And she believed me, and I tried it, and I couldn't. So I didn't. I still feel bad about that flotsam carcass of melted ice cream in the bag when I pulled up to the driveway that day. But the ulterior reason I found every possible way to get to DQ had to do more with the heart and not the tummy. See, there was a girl in school that I really liked. I mean, really liked. We'd grown up together, gone through grade school together, were confirmed at the same Lutheran church on the corner together, and we're in the same junior high school. Oh yeah, I had a crush, but we were just friends. Not that anyone in the seventh or eighth grade was much more than that back then. It may have happened, but I never heard of any of my schoolmates being sent away for about nine months or so. Just didn't happen in my naive world. So mine was a pure and sanitary, absolute textbook case of unrequited puppy love. So when an idle conversation with her one day and the subject turned to the new Dairy Queen near where we lived, I was ready. Like a world class sommelier describing the virtues of the 1945 Chateau Mouton Rothschild Black Red Bordeaux blend, which went for a cool 33 grand, I could go on uh, and on about how the much improved quality of the superb 1968 butterscotch sauce versus a humdrum 1967 vintage. Oh, the 68 was so much more divine than the palette. Oh, yeah, I was piquant. Yeah, quite piquant. It was as I was enlightening the secret girl in my dreams with the what's and where's of the frozen treat landscape, that she let it slip that why I go to that dairy queen fairly often too. She what? She frequented my den of delectable diversions as well as myself? We could actually find ourselves like straw star crossed bicyclers thrown together in a random storm of vanilla, a hot fudge, and dare I say it, love. It was out there. I mean, she said it. I could almost reach out, grab the words as they melted into the ether, fold them into a heart-shaped origami or origami, and tuck them in my husky boy's shorts pocket. She went to DQ, too. Whoa! While I tried to shake away the image of her slowly nibbling the elegant, iconic, curly top of the DQ cone, I subtly began a gentle line of inquiry. How often did she go there? When did she usually go there? When might she be there again? Between what hours of the day was she most likely to be there? On what days is she usually seen there? What did she usually order? When was she going to be there next? Was she there on the afternoon of June 27th between the hours of 2 and 4 p.m.? Did she know the formula for linoleum? Uh, Like I said, subtle. But she wasn't sure. So it was left with her saying, sometime soon, I hope. Maybe I'll see you there. Sometime soon, I hope, she said. Maybe I'll see you there, she had also said. Uh, That could be almost any time, I thought. In fact, it could be pretty much any hour of the day for the rest of our lives, maybe even longer. Or at least for the rest of the summer. Plus, she didn't blanch or hurl at the suggestion that maybe, just maybe, our Sunday-seeking paths may cross. It would be okay. It was reasonable and not totally offensive thought. She threw me a casual bye-bye and bounced out of sight. Yeah, she bounced. And so my quest began. Not unlike one of Arthur's mighty knights, except a lot shorter, I began the preparations needed for my noble pursuit. Of course, I would need to ensure that my mighty steed, Lancelot the bike, was prepared for what could be mile after mile of almost daily treks across a variety of ruling terrains, cement, Asphalt, dirt, concrete, gravel, puddles, bridges, and grassy fields would have to be traversed. Maybe even a minefield or two. To say nothing of having to cross some really busy streets. This would require an ability to look both ways like Merlin could see the future. Uh, this was to be an expedition of Shackletonian dimensions. And the other challenge was uh, acquiring of cash. I would need enough pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, shekels. Pounds, drachmas, rupees, maybe even a few francs to make my mission a reality. So like the famous Mel Fisher, I took to the task of treasure hunting with an aggressiveness usually reserved for the squared circle, i.e. the boxing ring, or in PE, dodgeball. And search I did. Couch cushions, pockets of pre-washed pants, every payphone coin return slot, yeah, you remember them that I could find. Car seats, even dad's dresser. Uh, but you could only take a little because dad remembered each and every coin that he placed Fagin-like with his watch and wallet each night after work. One quarter yeah, it's probably okay. Two quarters, here comes Kojak. Uh, discretion was definitely the better part of valor or value. After what seemed like an eternity in kid's time, which was probably closer to a week, and thanks to a visit or two from grandma, I had finally amassed a fortune of random coins worthy of crisis probably well over three or four dollars, at least enough to cover several weeks of carefully rationed banana splits. Maybe two or three a week. With each one would come the possibility that I might, perchance, by the merest coincidence, run into her. So that's what I did. For most of that summer, every couple of days, I'd saddle up old lands, tuck a couple of quarters in my husky boy shorts, and cross the fields and hills to make my way to the promised land of the Queen of Derry. At first, in, my order, uh, my, my, or, in order to ration my coinage, I tried to get by with maybe just a cone, or, uh, but I soon found that those don't last very long. And I would quickly begin sensing the stink eye from the guy who filled the cones if I was just hanging around reading the Superman comic I had surreptitiously tucked in the back pocket of my shorts. Oh, in an effort to come across as erudite and worldly, I did try to bring a copy of the Wall Street Journal one day, but it was so thick and long, it made me sit crooked on my bike, and and I kind of looked like a crab pedaling down the street with a big honking newsprint claw sticking out of your butt. Comics worked better, and they were more fun to read. After a few experimental Sundays, dilly bars, Mr. Misty's, which I never really did learn to like, I finally settled on my personal poison, the crown jewels of ice cream, the Mona Lisa of melting goodness, the banana split. Even though not my favorite formula, I first went with the standard combination of chocolate, strawberry, and pineapple sauces for a while. Then I heard another customer ask if they could get butterscotch instead of pineapple, and my mind reeled. I slept on it, conjuring different concoctions in my mind all night. So when I returned the next time, I had designed the perfect banana split cocktail, not unlike a Frank Lloyd Wright masterpiece. My personal talisian West consisted of hot fudge instead of chocolate, butterscotch instead of strawberry, and marshmallow sauce instead of, pine- instead of pineapple. I even talked him into extra chopped nuts on top of the whipped cream. Calories? Eh, what calories? I like my Husky Boy shorts. Not really. So week after week, I'd make the trek every couple of days. So often, in fact, that the guy behind the counter and I'd become bosom buddies. He'd see me and ask, the usual? i just nod sheepishly and escaped to my booth in the corner by the window where I could stake out the doors and be ready for my displaying my great Daniel Day-Lewis-like surprise when she walked in. But she never did. The summer came and went. I, not surprisingly, put on a few unneeded pounds, which my mother could never understand since she had actually seen my appetite retreat for a time. Gee, I wonder why. But alas, I was never able to perform the perfectly planned and rehearsed, eyes wide open look of amazement as my dream lover came true and walked in bathed in blue and yellow neon and fluorescent light, eating a DQ cone. Well, thank you for listening to, what the heck is it, Smiling in L 2.0, Life After Retirement, and then some I uh, quick epilogue. I did run into her some years later uh, at a family wedding reception where uh, I had something bad to eat and ended up getting stuck in the john. So uh, she had to leave, and I had to go by and and see her at her work the next day, and uh, it was never quite as exciting as I thought. So anyway, if she I said if I wanted to, I could stop by and I did and I did. See you next time on Smiling in Hell.